This is the Journal of Ecology podcast. I'm Scott Chamberlain. Jacqueline Gill is an assistant professor at the University of Maine. She has a paper out in the journal in September issue this year on linking dung fungus to bison density. I recently caught up with her at the annual meeting of the Ecological Society of America in August to chat about her research. I'm Jacqueline Gill. I'm just finishing a postdoc at Brown University with the Environmental Change Initiative and on my way to a new faculty position at the University of Maine. What problem was your study trying to solve? So there's there's been a long-standing question of whether the extinction of Ice Age herbivores had any impact on the surrounding vegetation. And that's been really difficult to study in the past because the fossil record for animals is discontinuous in space and time. So you have these vertebrate bone fossils versus the plant fossil record, which is usually composed of pollen. So you have, you have continuous records in time, but maybe discontinuous records in space. So recently, um, folks have been starting to use a new proxy for the presence of these large herbivores, this uh, dung fungus. So it's spores from the fungus fall into the pollen record. And um, when you have lots of them, you know you have lots of herbivores. When they are absent from the record, that's the extinction event. Um, but there's, we, we, we understand very little about the proxy um, in terms of whether it's really just a large herbivore signal or whether things like rabbits or, or mule deer, um, which are obviously don't go extinct during the, place, or during the Holocene, um, are able to generate a record as well. And so the, the study was designed to really test uh, some of our assumptions about this proxy using some of the only surviving mega herbivores uh, in North America, bison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, can you describe a bit about the study system used? Yeah, so uh, the, the study was conducted in Conza Prairie, which is a large tall grass prairie reserve in the Flint Hills of Kansas, and one of the reasons it stayed tall grass prairie is because it's um, very, it's got a lot of uh, topography, it's not really great for, for plowing, and so um, they've got a really nice experimental system with replicates of grazing and fire treatments, and so the bison are able to roam freely within an enclosure, so we know where the bison are, and then we know where the bison aren't, um, and in addition to that, the matriarchal bison have uh, radio collars on them, so even within the enclosure, we know where the bison spend more time because they don't use the landscape um, evenly. They have preferences. So we deployed a a series of pollen traps Mm -hmm. into the ground, basically to catch all the surrounding pollen and spores from the the landscape. So we we set a bunch of traps in the enclosure with the bison Mm -hmm. and then outside. Okay. So that that was basically the methods. I mean, there were presumably uh, laboratory Mm -hmm. methods, but those were just counting spores? Yeah, basically. Filter, filtering out all the, the other crap that fa- also falls into your trap. The first year it was actually pretty funny. We couldn't use some of the traps because they were full of dung beetles. <laughs> so mm. we had to put a, a screen and then some of them were full of this fungus because they, they're little water collectors too. Right. And so we had to put a little fungicide in the, <laughs> in the traps for the, the second year. Um, so uh, can you describe some of your uh, main findings? Yeah, so what we found was that uh, well, f- first off, you have spores where you have bison, and you don't have spores where you don't have bison. So, okay. th- so that was that was nice, um, just as a first order 
um, test of our methods. Um, and the second thing that we found was that um, you have more spores where you have higher grazing intensity. So where the bison are more of the time, there's um, uh, that's a strong predictor of, or the, the spore abundance is a strong predictor of grazing intensity. And the third thing we, we did, because these traps are also collecting all the pollen in the area, um, was to try to see whether or not the pollen record was able to pick up the signal of herbivory. And so we looked at the differences in vegetation um, as recorded by the pollen in the enclosed, the bison enclosure traps versus the ones that were outside. And what we found was that um, where you have bison grazing, you have um, more ambrosia pollen and less grass pollen. And it's the opposite outside of the enclosure. And that matches really nicely with what we know from the modern grazing literature that mm -hmm. bison tend to preferentially um, avoid forbs and they like grass. And so they change the community composition um, and structure where they, uh, where they graze. Interesting. So what's cool about that is that we can use that then to look at the impacts of, say, bison grazing in the Great Plains over the last 15,000 years, where there's been a lot of environmental change, including some really severe periods of drought that last 1,000 years. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask about, uh, you know, given your findings, that it, you know, this this measure seems to be a good a good proxy for, um, not only the presence but also the intensity, right? Yeah. Of grazing. Um, so you just said that there's, uh, you can use that to predict stuff that, that happened in the past, but like how how exactly does that work? So um, what you would do, and you can. People are starting to do this both in the more recent historic record, but also in, in longer time scales, is um, you need some sort of lake sediment record um, or, or a bog or something where you're, you're accumulating or collecting this environmental debris like pollen and charcoal. Um, and you have to go and you extract a, a, a core of that sediment, like an ice core, but of mud. And then you bring that back to the lab and, and filter out all of the material that you want. Um, and basically, by looking at the relative abundance of different kinds of pollen, um, spikes in the, in the number of charcoal particles, or the presence or absence of this dung fungus, um, you can piece together the relationship between changes in vegetation, herbivores, and fire through time. And it, it can help if you have a nice climate proxy as well to give you a sense of um, drought. There's some, there's some really cool records from the Great Plains, for example, um, that suggest that during the really severe droughts in the mid-Holocene, some six to 8,000 years ago, a lot of the lakes in the area dried out. And we know that this is probably true because you see spikes in um, struvite and compounds that are associated with, um, uh, with bird guano. Okay. So basically the geese have nowhere to go but this one lake, so they all go to that one lake when they migrate. And there's a huge spike in the, in the um, the struvite um, record at that time. So you have these interesting environmental events and uh, that we know about, um, and and the next step will be to tease apart the relationship between, you know, climate, grazing, fire, and plants. Wow. Um, but certainly you could use it in, in any number. You could use the proxy in any number of records. People have used it in, um, you know, to reconstruct the timing of pastoralism in the Alps, for example. Right. <clears throat> right. Um, so, so how general do you think these results are? Like, you did this nice study in this one place. Can you extrapolate that to? Is that going to hold in, you know, the other side of the country or in Africa or? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I actually, I actually think they're probably more uh, 
I, th I think that they they have they have. Let me start over again. So um, so that's a good question. I think that because we have so many records of um, that of past environmental history and extinction using this method that are that already exist, mm -hmm. um, and we know that in those systems, there's the timing of the extinction based on this or this um, spore record coincides with what we know from the fossil record. So we've, we've had a pretty good sense already that it's, uh, that it's a good proxy. So really, this, this, is a, this test w is just a really nice confirmation of some of the assumptions we've made from the patterns we've, we've observed. And so I think it's actually pretty, in, on that sense, in terms of saying, yes, these spores really are recording the presence and extinction mm -hmm. of herbivores, um, I think it's, it's relatable to other systems. Where mm -hmm. I think you would would want to not Overinterpret would be the grazing intensity side of things mm. because I think that there's, there's, I, I wouldn't, what I would do is, based on our study, I think you can say with a, a pretty good degree of confidence that if you have spores and then you don't, then that's an extinction event. Maybe it's local or population collapse of some yeah. kind. What I wouldn't do is interpret wiggles ups and up and down, right? That, mm -hmm. oh, this, this peak means maybe we have higher grazing intensity and this trough means we have lower. Right. So I think that we're, we may never be able to interpret this dung fungus proxy in terms of wiggles, maybe just presence and absence. I guess this is sort of like describing a, a or verifying a previous assumption, I guess, and yeah. sort of checking that. But so do you, do you plan to build on like this, like refine this sort of like um, test of how good a proxy, you know, the fungus is for, um, you know, uh, grazing and, and, and uh, presence of grazing, or is it like you're done with that and, and, and it'll just be nice to be able to use that? And I think that in terms of in terms of validating the proxy in general, I think I'm I think the study was a very satisfying one, um, mm -hmm. and uh, certainly there you know other other folks may 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 try to replicate it in other systems, which I think is important. Mm -hmm. um, what what I'm interested in in possibly doing next would be to see um, right now we just we generally look at just the total number of spores in this in this genus the genus sporomyla mm -hmm. and there are you know several dozen spe known species in the modern record and we don't have a good handle on whether or if those species have associations with particular kinds of dung mm. at least in the in the paleo record there's been a lot of work in the modern fungal literature um, that shows that some species are associated with, say, cows versus mm. moose. Um, but what would be really great to do would be to to look at some of the preserved fossil dung, the coprolites, in the paleo record, mm -hmm. and and get a sense of um, you know what's really generating the signal. Because right now yeah. we just say mega herbivores as opposed yeah. to well maybe it's mammoths and you know woolly rhinos or something okay. like that. Okay. So so you'll like being able to like associate to know like if spores associate with particular kinds of dung will be able to then tell you uh which herbivores you're you're dealing with right yeah is it because at this point in the paleo record we're not we don't know if it's mm -hmm. grazers and browsers i mean grazers mm -hmm. would make more sense because of the way that the the fungus reproduces it just dis passively disperses its spores onto the surrounding mm -hmm. plants on the ground it mm -hmm. doesn't really get very far up into the atmosphere um, so it's probably, I mean, my hypothesis would be that it's more of a grazer signal and it might not pick up some of the browsers like, um, like mastodons. So maybe it's more of a mammoth signal than a mastodon signal. How, did a, how does a grazer different from a browser in um, terms of how they... 
Yeah, so the grazers tend to um, to crop the vegetation more closely to the ground. Okay. Um, they're more they're more lawn mowers as opposed to like garden shears. Okay. Um, whereas the browser might take more woody material, um, stuff from from higher up. Okay. Um, twigs and le more twigs and leaves and things. Okay. Although, um, so that of course you can see how that might change yes. vegetation sure. in different ways. Um, although one of the things that we're finding, um, there have been some really great preserved gut contents um, yeah. from mammoths that are in, in that are coming out of the melting permafrost, right. and they're finding much more um, woody material than huh. previously thought. So it's always been assumed that mammoths, woolly mammoths, are these grazers or sort yeah. of lawnmowers, and um, but there's indications from the preserved contents of their guts, and you can identify yeah. these to species that they were eating, you know, at least some twigs and, and leaves and things. Okay. So they may have been more generalist than we thought. So they, you said you could identify them. Are they willows, I assume? A lot of willows? A lot of willows, there? yeah. Um, some of the, um, uh, like, vaccinium, some of the tundra, right. your traditional tundra plants. Right, yeah. right, right. Some, some birch, actually birch and um, dwarf birch. We have been speaking with Jacqueline Gill for the Journal of Ecology podcast. I'm Scott Chamberlain.